Calling all AEC professionals. Get ready for unparalleled professional insights with detailed and original podcasts by RCAD. This is the podcast that brings you the untold stories and lessons learned behind the design and delivery of a building project. Hey, it's Sharice Lakeside, aka the CSI Kraken, and your host. Join me as we dive deep into the tales of conflict, triumph, and sheer ingenuity. Yeah, so when Serena was named for the, it was going to be named for the building, you know, we really were able to work with teams at Nike Branding and how to really infuse her influence and identity in the very public spaces. Detailed features architects, engineers, builders, and manufacturers who spill the beans on the most complex, interesting, and downright odd building conditions they've encountered. Another challenge of the of the shuttle is actually and putting it in launch position is how you brace that seismically. It's really supported by only two pins at the base of the booster rockets. And there's a large base isolator that's underneath the shuttle that kind of prevents it from moving too much in an earthquake. The, you know, when you have 600 people or 300 people in a room, acoustically, you really need a high floor to floor so that you can have the right acoustic environment for people to be able to talk and that, that speech intelligibility is really good. Every episode unveils lessons learned and connects you to the products you need to navigate similar challenges. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Detail today and be prepared for the unexpected on your next project. Every building has a story and we are here to tell it. Career paths for architects and designers are wide ranging, but often determined by someone else. If you're listening to this, you're likely considering blazing your own trail. Whether it's creative control, increased earnings, more flexibility, ability to pursue work that you're passionate about, or accolades and recognition. Having your own firm opens opportunities and benefits that employment simply cannot. Aspiring architects and designers around the world see flashy project features and glowing firm profiles and dream of starting their own architecture firm. However, you rarely hear the full story. The added responsibilities, inconsistent income, client management, slow growth, let alone what it's really like to start a new architecture firm from scratch. Until now. I'm Jeffrey Lee, and this is Emerging, a Gable Media podcast. We have something to offer. We like the way that we work together, and, and the three of us are just like a tricycle, balance each other out. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. This isn't just like, oh, I, we went to school together. This is like, oh, we're going to know each other for a long time. This is a podcast where you'll hear what it's really like to start a new architecture firm. Through our stories of triumphs and setbacks, you'll witness the unfiltered journey of starting an architecture practice with me and my partners, Lexi White and Chris Tarasi. You'll gain insights from our experience exploring business models, financial planning, project acquisition, branding, marketing, legal considerations, and more. You'll even hear firsthand accounts from us, family members, friends, and colleagues along our journey. Now, there are different ways to start an architecture firm, but this is our path. 
Regardless of your approach, our hope is that our insights will offer a roadmap and cautionary tales for aspiring architecture firm founders. Our collective story began in 2012, when Lexi, Chris, and I attended architecture graduate school at Washington University in St. Louis, WashU. If you're not familiar with the architecture program at WashU, HOK, one of the largest architectural firms in the world, looms large as the three founders of the company all attended WashU. I met Chris and Lexi at our orientation. Chris had come from Boston by way of New York. I was uh, born in Boston and raised just outside the city. Uh, I've got a mom, a dad, and two sisters. It was like a really creative and, and supportive family. Recently, my, my father digitized all our family videos, so I've been downloading and just kind of revisiting them. And it was a great reminder of just how supportive and, and fun it was growing up with the family. And everyone was super creative and supportive of that. I, I think the story of how I found my way into the creative industry was uh, I started drawing one of my stuffed animals when I was like four years old, apparently. And, and it was enough that my parents could recognize that I was drawing from an actual object in front of me. Chris's early signs of artistic ability inspired his family to enroll him into formal painting classes with an immensely talented local oil painter, Rosemary Morelli. Painting became his sanctuary and the on-ramp to his creative path. That was kind of my passion and, and savior because I was not very good at, at school or anything academic. I think a lot of that had to do with how it was being taught and I'm, I'm much more hands-on and a little more off the walls. So it was it was tough to sit in a classroom where you just have to get lectured to. I, I did that through my high school years and almost didn't make it out of high school, but luckily did and had only applied to two colleges. Both were art schools. And I was fortunate to get into a, a state art school, Massachusetts College of Art and Design. And the curriculum there is kind of based off the Bauhaus where the first year Nobody has a major, and you're all just kind of exploring different fields of art, everything from representational drawing, sculpting, filmmaking, all that kind of stuff. And then after that first year is when you declare your major. When it came to deciding a major, there was a lot for Chris to consider. Though I loved painting, and that was my background, I was worried about the finances of that, and and somehow I, I got fooled into thinking that architects made good money, but that was... Uh, turned out to not be true. I was also considering like graphic design and the industrial design program is incredible at that school. And I think what it came down to is I, I figured, you know, in industrial design, I might design a doorknob, which is fascinating and, and you can do, you know, a million different things with it. But if I start with architecture, it's a much larger scale and I might still have that opportunity to design that doorknob. So I ended up in the architecture program that program was incredibly kind of craft focused, hand drafting for the first few years while we did learn computer software, but it was also the early days of Rhino and, and Revit and all that stuff. So towards the tail end, we started to get into some of that, but it, it was all such new software at the time. Chris graduated during the Great Recession. Though he had some work opportunities with past faculty members, mentors, and a friend's father, who was an architect at Salvatore Associates, the recession created a challenging market where work eventually did dry up. But it was really uh, scary. There was like a four month period where there was just no work. I think I applied to over 200 jobs and, and just got nothing. 
But around the same time I got into school, I also got a job offer in New York City, which was kind of my next goal to make it to New York. So I worked with a guy uh, named Buck Moorhead Architect, a pretty small firm of three or four people doing all types of projects. I worked there for about six months before I went off to WashU and moved out to St. Louis. In my case, I was already in state. Originally born in the heart of Los Angeles to parents who immigrated from Korea, I grew up in Springfield, Missouri from the age of five. Moving to Springfield came with its challenges for me. Being a predominantly white area, I dealt with some identity issues growing up. However, for my parents, they had the opportunity to follow their entrepreneurial spirit. After working at a Chinese restaurant for a year and a half, they bought the restaurant from the owner. It was a family business and the kitchen in the back room became my second home. Over the years, they opened several different restaurants and eventually ended up in Columbia, Missouri, a small market. These ventures exposed me to the art of construction at a younger age where I developed a fascination with building and deconstructing things. Although architecture seemed like a distant dream at first, it was my time in undergrad at the University of Missouri, Columbia, that really opened my eyes to the possibilities in the field. I continued my master's at Washington University in St. Louis, where I eventually became the fabrication manager, which ignited my passion in digital fabrication, which was really a turning point in my journey. For Lexi, her journey actually began in England, but she was raised primarily in the idyllic little town of Ojai, California. As an only child, she spent her youth on incredible trips with her parents, soaking in the beauty of famous buildings all across the globe. Her creative path unfolded to her through a number of experiences that planted the seeds of her future career and the competitiveness that it would require. My uncle specifically used to make gifts like a chest for drawing tools. And then he would send me all the drawing tools as like a Christmas gift. And so I guess in a way that definitely had an influence on me at a young age also, you know, I'm talking about maybe like six or seven years old, that there was a emphasis on at least some level of creativity, sort of parallel with, I was also really involved in tennis for a really long time. I took that pretty seriously. Both of my parents played and they put me into programs pretty young and it was something that we all enjoyed doing together. But then, yeah, I, I was pretty decent. <laughs> and when I was younger, they would drive me around to tournaments and that kind of thing. And I don't even remember what I was ranked, but you know, I had a ranking at some point in, in middle school. And then in high school, when, we, when I moved back to Ojai, I joined the tennis team. And there were a lot of really awesome, like I sort of got lucky. The year ahead of me and my year, there were a lot of people, like I went to a really small private school. And so there weren't that many, you know, students in general. And so a lot of times the sports teams may or may not be good depending on who actually went to the school that year. So, but we got really lucky. We had a really good roster. And so I think we went to like the state finals a couple years in a row. I know one, we lost to like Beverly Hills, which was upsetting to me at the time. But um, yeah, it's always been a part of my life. I still play on teams now. There's a program called the USTA, which is like a national program. I think it's also how people are still ranked if you're a professional. I'm on like teams now, and that's a pretty big outlet for me to let off some steam and to meet people outside of architecture because sometimes architecture is, um, you know, you can get in the bubble and never leave if you want. So it's a good outlet for me for sure. 
During high school, Lexi enjoyed art and considered architecture as a career, but was initially deterred. As I was getting more serious thinking about it, I had gone to ask different people, like my aunt had taken me to a practice. I can't remember if she worked in that practice or if it was a friend's practice or something, but she had taken me there so that I could go on a tour and kind of see what an architectural practice looked like. And there was somebody in that studio that was like the creative guy. He had all this like stuff around him. At the time, I thought it was stuff. In hindsight, they were like models and cool drawings and things, but he had like all this stuff around him. And I, me- I remember leaving there thinking like he was some kind of like creative genius and that that's what it was going to take to be like a designer. And it sort of put me off of architecture, to be honest. Um, there was also somebody local in Ojai that had kind of warned me that it's a really difficult profession. And, you know, he was also maybe more on the creative spectrum of, you know, technical to more design. He was more on the design end of that spectrum. And so, yeah, I had gotten this idea in my head around like the high school time when you're thinking about what major you're going to do in college, that maybe I didn't have enough creative juices to really make that a profession. And so I actually went to undergrad for engineering originally at Lehigh, which is in Pennsylvania. And while at Lehigh, I had a pretty good first year, but there were a lot of changes like everybody experiences in undergrad. And in my second year, I really hit a wall. I was pretty deeply unhappy and I was failing out of my classes. I think I had three Ds and maybe an F and like one passing grade. And so I sort of had to reevaluate what I was going to do. I hadn't ever come into that kind of roadblock when it came to school so that I knew that to some degree, it wasn't that I couldn't do the work or couldn't succeed in that field. But I knew that I wasn't applying myself, which meant on some level, I wasn't interested in it enough to make it like a life profession, especially when you think about like, when you're an adult, how long you're going to have to work, you know, 40, 50 years or whatever. I sort of valued that I would enjoy what I did. So that's when I sort of pivoted and I left the engineering school and joined the art and design program at Lehigh, which was an unaccredited program. So that meant I had to get a master's degree. And there was a really amazing professor there, Hyun-Tae Jung. He was a great sort of champion for students that were trying to go to, on to graduate school straight away from undergrad. And I spent a whole summer with him. He was really difficult in a lot of ways, but I learned a lot from him during that time. And that's when I sort of really fell in love with it because he would take us on trips like around New England. So we went on this amazing trip up to Boston and up to Exeter where the library that Louis Kahn had done is. And he had timed it at like the perfect time when the sun was coming in. And it was just like this kind of amazing trip. And that's sort of really when I fell in love with architecture, I guess, and decided that I was really going to put all my energy into it. Lexi followed that passion, eventually leading to the master's program at WashU alongside Chris and I. When you start graduate school, you get put into different studio groups and they're like 10 or 15 people. Yeah, there were four studios. So Chris and Lexi were in one in 2012. Chris used to sit right at the front. So he was was the first desk. And so for that entire semester, he just always... He was like the gatekeeper and just messed with Yeah. 
he just looked grumpy all the time. So I was, I don't think I talked to you much. Jeff, I'll tell you why I was grumpy. You sat on the opposite side and it's four in the morning and you're the guy whistling in a concrete studio at four in the morning. Right. There's also that. Like, I would come in super early, stay super late, but Chris was always the one that was there before me and stayed after me. So, yeah, it was probably annoying for him to listen to me be all cheery. Graduate school was tumultuous and an emotional experience for us all. But Lexi really crystallized the experience. Attention architects and creative minds. Get ready to supercharge your brand with Build Your Brand, the podcast that's unlocking the secrets of branding success for creatives. Hey there, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my friend, architect marketing expert, Jeff Eccles at Build Your Brand Podcast, where he explores the captivating stories of the world's top brands and transforms their lessons into powerful moves for small firm architects and creatives like you. In season one, Jeff shares the thrilling tale of Southwest Airlines, where he dissects their journey to the summit and distills it into strategies tailor-made for you. It's important to keep in mind that companies like Southwest compete in the real world, just like you, and face real-world challenges, just like you. You might be surprised at how similar those challenges are to the struggles that you grapple with on a day-to-day basis. Don't miss out on your blueprint for success. Subscribe, tune in, and let's build your brand together. You may have noticed that the very best brands in the world are also known for having somewhat unique corporate cultures. That's often the glue that holds everything together when they encounter those rough spots. We don't do it because it inconveniences the passengers to whom we are primarily dedicated, the short haul uh, frequent flyer. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Your Brand today. Remember, no matter the size, the journey's the same. Your brand's journey to the top starts here. I mean, grad school in general, I would imagine that most people that go to architecture grad school would echo anything that I would say right now, which is, it's a really difficult environment, especially, you know, I had gone to architecture undergrad, but the kind of rigor that was involved and the amount of work, it paled in comparison to what the graduate school level of work took. And, you know, on top of that, you've moved to a new location, you know, St. Louis, which to be honest, I never imagined living in St. Louis. And that was a bit of a culture shock also. And then to layer on top of that, a truly intense amount of work. Like I can't stress that (laughs) enough. And I think part of that, it's part of the education to sort of dump the quantity of work on you. And then you have to distill down like what's going to be most worth it to you in the end. So because you have to do that in a day-to-day basis at an architecture practice anyway, like deciding what's going to be the most useful amount of your time and to get the project done. So it was just, you know, new friends, new city, huge amount of work. (laughs) And then, you know, also wanting to use it as a time to be investigating what you're interested in. So, you know, school is like the only time that you have that, you know, when you go and you work somewhere, I mean, you can do it on the side, obviously that's what we're trying to do, but 
you know, schools, it's a, there's a lot more freedom. You feel like you have a lot more time. So you're trying to layer in, you know, what do I want to do? What's my vision? So it's just a lot of, it's like just a lot of moving pieces, I would say. Our shared academic pursuits brought us together, but it was one project and a series of events that would forge our bond. Chris and Lexi were assigned to work together on a project during our first semester, and little did we know that this collaboration would be the catalyst for our future endeavors. During that following fateful summer, Chris was looking for a roommate at the same time that I was looking for a place to live. I moved in, inadvertently creating the site and foundation for our friendship to grow. None of us had internships, and we wanted to figure out... The least least employable people. Yeah. For the summer, so we all kept hanging out. Also, and- you had a lot of barbecues for some reason. Oh yeah, and I, I think I think we literally decided this competition maybe over like a barbecue. We were like, "Oh, what are you doing? Oh, nothing. What are you doing? Oh, nothing." <laughs> exactly. Uh, so that would then we worked the summer. I mean, we were taking class at the same time. We were taking like structural engineering course, I think. While we were doing that, we were doing this like in the afternoons this competition work chris was looking for people to join him in a timber competition for mid-rise construction it was hosted by the boston society for architecture a community committed to improving the quality of life for boston area residents by championing innovation in the built environment finalists of the competition would have the opportunity to work with a fabricator as a mentor for a year-long development grant to build a mock-up of their proposal Collectively, I think we're all very interested in learning about different materials. And so it seemed kind of like the perfect thing that if we could win and get to work with a fabricator, that that would be a great experience for our personal development of understanding like construction processes and fabrication processes and stuff like that. Through this competition, we had not only become closer friends, but we also developed a working relationship outside of schoolwork. By the end of that summer, we received exciting news. We got an email saying that we were finalists in the competition. We were partnered with a mentor, Alan Organsky at Gray Organsky Architects, a fabricator, Unilam, in Unadilla, New York, upstate. There was a structural engineer, fire tower, and all this was curated and organized by Yugon Kim at IKD Design. So we had a year-long research phase where we were testing materials. They gave us the stipends for it. Serendipitously, we were also preparing for a study abroad program in Finland, which would take place the following spring. In Finland at Alto University, they uh, have a really strong wood program. Uh, it's, it's huge in Finnish culture, their ability to build and fabricate in wood. So we were able to even lean on uh, teachers there for insights and in how we were detailing this installation piece that was exhibiting our proposal for the mid-rise construction. And then we're calling over to Alan Organsky to check in on details and everything. And then the whole time in Finland, we ate nothing but carbs and came back <laughs> with, a, with a Finnish 15 and had to go to, <laughs> go to the, the opening of our exhibit. <laughs> I can't believe you brought that up. As part of the competition, we were requested to build a model, but we misunderstood the directive. Finland went to fun places. I stayed behind and got to make this board of the models, which was great. It was fun. I mean, you're in Finland, you're bending wood, you've got this great wood shop. We shipped the model back to the U.S. It arrived 
and Yugon goes, this is not what I was looking for. Because <laughs> we made we made a model of the facade system as we right. were proposing it, and he wanted a model of the installation piece, which is way simpler. I think it, it would have been done in like half a day, but Jeff built this beautiful undulating curved facade piece, many, many little modules coming together, paid to ship it from Finland to Boston, and then found out, you know, as always, we did something wrong. The exhibit installation was ultimately a success. The competition solidified our commitment to exploring the intersection of architecture, materiality, and construction. This experience really set the stage for what we wanted to achieve in the future professionally. Competitions, it's, you know, one in 300 to win it. And I think that we were just lucky. I think they were probably looking for a student group amongst the other professionals. So we had that going for us. I think we were just fortunate to to make it and then we're like great this will be how all the competitions go we'll just keep doing them together and we'll win them all and then i don't think we won another one until no we what did. do you mean we won we sukkah. did that oh the sukkah yeah but we lost the first sukkah it started there we found success doing a few other projects loved all the the design build aspect of it we were all on the same page there and we all got along so i think we felt like we tapped into something. So when we graduated, I don't know, we kind of very informally put this napkin sketch together. I forgot what bar we were at, but we had just graduated. It's pretty late in the night, and Chris very much wants to do this napkin sketch. So we pull it out, and we come out with Jeff, a list. I think Lexi and I were worried that, because we were all knowing that we were moving our separate ways, and Lexi was going to the West Coast. I was too at the time, but we were worried that you would stay in Missouri. I have a close-knit family. I often visited my parents during breaks to help them with their business that I mentioned earlier. So Lexi and Chris were afraid that I would return home to the family business instead of continuing to build on what our trio had started. We found ourselves at a bit of a crossroads. We had to make a decision that would shape our future. Should we go our separate ways or take a leap of faith together? The napkin sketch was really like, what are our, it was sort of like, what are our individual dreams? And we were just kind of like drawing them down and what we had was a napkin at some bar, but like, the the funny part of that is maybe that in drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively that <laughs> then you know in your head you've rooted like oh i'm connected to these people like long term this isn't just like oh i we went to school together this is like oh we're gonna know each other for a long time we were also saying like we got to find a way to keep working together like none of us knew what was coming up next I think some had jobs lined up, some were just pulling together portfolio, all that. I think the napkin sketch was also a commitment to like find a way to keep doing this. And, and it's it outlined 15 points. The same point is written down probably five or 10 times. It's like, do a business plan, <laughs> like come up with a, a one-year plan, come up with a two-year plan. <laughs> it's the least detailed thing, but it was a pact. It was a contract. I think we had all different color markers and I carried that around in my jacket pocket for over a year. And then I found it in tatters. I still have it. And now that's become kind of part of our tradition when we get together. Now it's become more animated with pictures and drawings, but we kind of outline, you know, the milestones of the previous year and the hopes for the next year. 
So that was, I think, an early commitment that we were going to keep it going. And as we settled into new positions, we were quickly overwhelmed with professional life and getting situated in that. But from time to time, you know, we'd see each other every summer at least. And from time to time, we'd do competitions here and there. COVID was also a, a bit of a catalyst because we found working remotely, there are now all these systems to do it and we're all very used to it. And then on top of that, just the frustrations of our professional life and and knowing that we have something to offer. We like the way that we work together and, and the three of us are just like a tricycle, balance each other out. I landed at Davis Brody Bond in New York, working in construction administration, eventually leading the team on massive projects at the Natural History Museum in New York City, a major renovation of the Halls of Gems and Minerals, and the Richard Gilder Center for Science, Education, and Innovation, Studio Gang's acclaimed canyon-inspired design. This seven years of experience helped hone my skills in materiality, construction methodology, and detailing. Lexi's design acumen drew her to the West. Actually, my thesis advisor was had worked in Los Angeles for a long time. And so he gave me a lot of really great connections to try to reach out to and get a job in LA. So I ended up gravitating toward LA. I first started working at a larger corporation that sort of had a little design arm within that big corporation. And that little that team was really only like 15 or 20 people, but the corporate firm as a whole was maybe like 500. And I worked mostly on like institutional projects. They did a lot of, because they had the big corporate backing behind them, they could do the design work and then have people that were in-house professionals that knew like, you know, medical buildings or that knew student centers. Like there was a big robust portfolio behind them, but they would do kind of one-off buildings of each of these kind of project types. So I worked on a a couple university student center type buildings. And then they also were doing work, a lot of work in Dubai, which I know, I know a lot of firms do work in the Middle East. And so I worked on a couple towers in Dubai as well for a while, which was really intense. Um, yeah, so that was, it was sort of a mix of hospitality, I guess, like hotel, this hotel tower in Dubai, and then these kind of institutional projects. And that studio was really worked very digitally. There was some sort of hand modeling, but not so much. A lot of the iterative design process was done in maybe small 3D prints and massings and that kind of thing. And then really long chunks of time for client presentations and kind of reworking the program. I don't know why, but we always reworked the program. But it was fun because it sort of got us to pull projects in a little bit more interesting of a direction. And then after that, I went to a more design-focused studio, I guess you could say, like art, artistic design. And, you know, a lot of those projects that I worked on there were maybe more time spent on the front end of working through the concept and in a similar way to the last place, kind of stretching it, but truly in a, in a way that I didn't think you could push so much, but that architect was really able to get people behind his ideas and stretch like a really simple idea into a much bigger building or complex or whatnot. So I worked on a few more public facing projects at that office, predominantly in Los Angeles, 
and some like public park kind of pavilion spaces. And I guess most of my time there was spent on a concert hall that was pretty technical. Uh, and that's sort of when I finally got to get sort of out of the presentation realm and kind of into the more coordination and pushing the aesthetics alongside all the technical pieces that have to happen at the same time in architecture. Chris initially worked in San Francisco, but found that he was more of an East Coast guy and ended up in New York. Being a bit further in his career, he gained more project management experience and got his license. I think I'm, um, for better or worse, a, a couple of years older than both Lexi and Jeff. So I'm a few years ahead in my career in terms of I, I took a break in between undergrad and grad, whereas they both just went right in. So I had some time working before going to grad school. And, and just in terms of uh, I got licensed when I was in New York just because I knew that was the next thing for me to do. Now, I think I'm in 11 or 12 years of experience, and the majority of it uh, as of recently has been high-rise residential, which I've been fighting like hell to get out of because while it's fascinating, uh, after you do a couple, it gets a little tired. I, I think it's, it's fun. I've worked on some fantastic projects, but just looking to gain experience in, in more of the civic and cultural realm. But yeah, I, I also gained a lot of experience in, in facade detailing, so... I had that under my belt as well as kind of project delivery and, and managing teams. So while in years and on paper, it, it may be that I have somewhat more experience than the other two folks, I think their experience has been vastly different than mine. So really it, together, we create like a, a much better offering where they had a lot more cultural work. And I just feel totally confident working with them because I think we're able to offer a, a wider range of, of experience collectively. By 2020, well into our careers, we each began to really consider the possibilities and revisit the idea of taking this leap together. One, we'd like to work the three of us together. Two, we'd like to be our own bosses, ultimately, like 10, 15 years from now or whatever. Hopefully it's less. <laughs> You know, like the, those are the real like opportunities to get to make design decisions and work with people that we respect, but are also have kind of like a familial, like family style connection with. And then challenges. I mean, the challenges list is kind of endless of like, where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is just like astronomical <laughs> that we constantly are trying to work through which we do work through like one by one yeah i mean for me i think the big challenge was the big worry was you know like getting to a point where we can maintain the business and i guess the legal side of it that the taxes all that stuff i figured we would it would come and it would just figure it out which easier said than done but uh it was just, I don't know, kind of the, that fear of starting a business and you have to maintain that you have enough coming in. If you have employees, that's a whole other monster. So I, I think for me, that was the biggest thing. But at the same time, having worked with these guys to some degree of success, I think it, it definitely gave me the confidence to be like, let's, let's try it. By doing all that business side up front, we kind of were able to maintain our day jobs and Kind of take it a little slower maybe allow us to make a little more mistakes at the beginning also on that though like the 
it's kind of like when you're going after the licensing like it's a list of things you have to do and then you get through it and you're like well what next like what is the next goal and with us like setting up a business the, the very like clear cut lists of things that have to happen are clear steps that you get through and then there's all the more ambiguous stuff so like we're able to check a lot of that off but then it's like well now how do we bring in a client and that's you know the challenges as Lexi said continue constantly and the more ambiguous stuff are the, are the things that we are continuing to struggle with and try to figure it out so now that you know us are you ready to embark on this journey in the following episodes, you'll hear firsthand insights as we explore business models, business structures, branding, legal and risk management, financial planning, finding work, tools and standard operating procedures, marketing and growth. One of the early steps in the process is determining your business model, the way in which a company generates income. And I can't wait to share our approach with you next time on Emerging. Because you can tell potential clients, like, we use digital fabrication to make crazy looking things. And a client potentially hears that. I have no idea what digital fabrication is. I don't want a crazy looking thing. And that sounds expensive. Thanks for listening. Emerging is a Gable Media podcast. If you enjoy the show, please tell a friend and rate and review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It really helps. And if you're looking for similar content, you can find even more at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com and before we go if you want to jump ahead and find out more about us and our practice you can visit us at lvl.studio small firm entrepreneur architects get ready to build a better business with the entree architect podcast where business meets architecture Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, the host of Entree Architect Podcast. Join me every week for inspiring interviews with passionate people that share proven strategies to help you build a better business. If you think there is a problem, one, you can't make a move until you have a plan in place. The accountability chart really helps plan, okay, for the business six to 12 months out, this is what we need. We cover it all from financial management to marketing, sales, productivity, and beyond. There's two sides of it, right? So there's the one when you don't have any work. So you're like, well, I'm either going to charge enough to be profitable or I'm going to go out of business. Or you have so much work and you have backlog and you don't need any more work. So you charge way more. I'd also say lagging measures, one of the best, like the best, best, best. <laughs> so for any client, for any professional service um, company, if you're going to take one thing away from what we're talking about today, is to look at a number called the labor efficiency ratio. Entree Architect is not just a podcast. It's your secret weapon for success. With over 500 episodes, it's one of the longest running architecture podcasts in the world. You're sure to find the information you need to elevate your business. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now and join the community of small firm entrepreneur architects building better businesses.